Okay, we're going to pick up again in Acts. We're going to start reading in Acts chapter 10. We covered a little bit of this last week, but we'll pick up here. Acts chapter 10, reading from verse 1. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, and he gave many alms to the Jewish people and he prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being very much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel was speaking to him, who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and he saw the sky open up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken back up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate, and calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. Okay, so that's where we'll stop for this moment. So as we had talked about last week, there's a centurion named Cornelius. He was a devout man, it says. He was God-fearing. So he and his household, so he had influenced his household. He was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. But he acknowledged that the God of the Jews was the proper God. He was God over all the earth. He was a devout man. The same word is used of the Jews on the day of Pentecost who were there who heard the initial message. So this word devout could be applied to a Gentile as well. He was a God-fearing man. And so he had his, his hour of the, of the day that he was praying. And in this prayer time, he had a vision. And he saw an angel. And the angel came and he says, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And we spent a long time on this last week, talking about what prayers do and what alms do and giving. And so in verse 5, it says that, he, it says that the angel tells him... Uh, um, Dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, who is, whose house is by the sea. And so he was told by the angel to dispatch some men and bring Peter. He, he wasn't told to go himself. He was told to dispatch some men, and that's exactly what he did. And so in verse, in, in verse uh, 5 and 6, it says that you're to get a man... Whose, whose name is Simon, who's also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner whose name 
is Simon, and this man lives by the sea in the city of Joppa. And so this is all the description that he had. There was no GPS, there, was no, there were no street signs. It's, all they knew is that they had to go to a city, and he would ask around, where is the sea? And they'd go to the seafront and they'll say, is there a house here but, uh, uh, belonging to a man named Simon, Simon, and he happens to be a tanner? And that's how directions went. And directions, the way we give and get directions change over time. You know, things happen to change over time. And I was talking about this last week with some other students. That, so, for example, right now, because of cell phones, you say, I will meet you in Los Angeles. And that's all you need. Because with cell phones, that's all the description that you need. It used to be, in the day before cell phones, we had to be quite descriptive. I will meet you in Los Angeles at this street and that street, at the corner of these two streets, by the street post, at such and such an hour, right at that time, I will meet you there. And that's the the type of description that you needed, because there was no way of, of pegging this thing right on. That's all you could do. And so you see that the way that they had to give directions and get directions and the way things had to be done. And, the, and it says that uh, uh, when, he, when the, the angel had left in verse 7, he summoned two servants and a devout soldier. So two of his personal servants and one of his devout soldiers. So this soldier also was a devout man, the same God-fearing type of devout man. So Cornelius had either influenced him or he had influenced Cornelius or the two of them had met. And, and so these, this was an inner circle of people and he dispatches them to go and to get Peter according to the command of the angel. There was an immediate obedience to the commandment that had come from God through the angel. What we see in the scriptures is that when God commanded something and there was obedience, it was an immediate act of obedience. When God speaks something to our heart, we are to act upon it immediately as best as we can. Immediately we are to act upon that. Now God may prompt us with something and we, we, we're in a situation where we're driving our car down the highway and we need to apologize to somebody, for example. Well, it might not be the best thing to you know, dial them on your cell phone as you're going down the highway drinking your, your latte. And it might be better to pull over. But it's an immediate act of obedience. There's some immediacy in obeying God. It, and if we're, we, we get this word that, oh, God is impressing me to do something. If we delay on it, what often happens is we try to explain that thing away. And what we see in the scriptures, there was an immediate response to God's teaching. That we are to respond immediately to what he's teaching us. And he sends them to Joppa. And so now, so it's, it's a two-day travel from Caesarea to Joppa. Two-day two day walk. And so, on the next day, it says that Peter was on the housetop at the sixth hour, which was the, the hour of prayer. So around noontime, he was praying. And, and uh, it turns out in Israel, then and even to this day, the big meal is around noontime. So for them, lunch is, is, is their big meal. And so it says that, that he was up on the housetop about the sixth hour, the hour of prayer. So he's staying with this man, Simon, who's a tanner. So already Peter was being worked on in his life because he's staying with a tanner. Not too many Jews were tanners because they always had to handle dead bodies and it made them defiled according to the law of Moses. 
And not too many people wanted to be around tanners because if a man was defiled, being with him defiled, defiled the people who were with him as well. But already God had begun to work in Peter's life that he was staying with a tanner, that that wasn't a problem for him. And he's up on the rooftop praying. So he would get alone. So he, he didn't just say, well, I'll just sit with the rest of the family and I, I can just pray while everybody's talking to me. No, he realized that in order to have an effective prayer time, he had to get alone. Well, how are you going to get alone? You're not in the middle of the woods. So he went up to the rooftop. Figured, this is where I'll be. And, and, and so he's on, on, on the rooftop and he's got some, some privacy there and he's praying. It says in verse 10, and he became hungry and was desiring to eat. Well, it was around their big meal time. He became hungry. Have you ever gone to pray and gotten hungry? I mean, it happens to me almost all the time. You go to, you go to pray and you get hungry. Well, it happened to Peter too. And plus, they're, they're cooking. And so he's smelling all this food. He's on the rooftop and he's trying to focus in on prayer and his stomach is growling. And he's, he's just, you know, waiting for this call to eat. And so you see the humanity of Peter. Peter struggles with the same things we struggle with. Here is the great apostle Peter, the one to whom the keys had been granted, to open the door to the Jews, to the Samaritans and the Gentiles. And he goes to pray, and his stomach is getting the best of him. This happens. All right, so we're all in this thing together. The same struggles you have, I have. The same that I have, Peter had. And so Peter is becoming hungry while the uh, preparations are being made, and he falls into a trance. And it says he sees the sky open up and an object like a great sheet coming down, and it's filled with all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air, and a voice comes to him and says, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, Peter was instructed through the law of Moses they had to eat only kosher food, a certain prescribed type of animal. Those who had, it, 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 they had to have a, a, a cleft hoof and they had to chew the cud. So a pig has a cleft hoof, but it doesn't chew the cud. A cow happens to have a cleft foot, and choose the cud. And so there were prescribed animals that they could eat, ones that they couldn't eat. They couldn't eat animals that chew the cud but didn't have a cleft hook. And I think it's, it's a rabbit or something does that. And so, so there were certain animals that they could and couldn't eat, certain creatures that they could and couldn't eat, certain insects they could eat, certain insects they couldn't eat, certain birds that they could eat. They could eat a chicken, but they couldn't eat birds of prey, for example. But God sends all these, a picture of all of these in front of Peter and says, Peter, arise, kill and eat. And then Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. And a voice came to him again a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. So Peter says, says uh, by no means, Lord. Which is, which, which is sort of a problem in itself. We're saying no, but we're saying Lord. And so, so is he Lord or are we going to say no to him? But we understand Peter, Peter's response because this is such a change in culture. When, when my wife Shireen came from Pakistan, it, in Pakistan being a Muslim country, although she grew up as a Christian being a Muslim country, you, there's no pork. 
So you can't get pork to eat. I think if you, if you raise pigs, they will kill you. And so she had never had pork. So when she came here, so, seeing people eat pork, it wasn't a religious problem. It was just, it, it, it's like Americans eating dog. Right? It's just like, no, it's not something that, that I eat. But if you go to the Philippines and you're a missionary, they will serve you dog. And out of being a missionary and out of courtesy, you know, you kind of hold your nose and you have to eat dog. But it was not something that she was used to. This is not something that Peter's used to. And also, it had been ingrained within him, religiously, all through this time growing up. And so here, maybe he thinks, this is a test. He says, no, I I don't do that, Lord. That's not something that I do. And so then the Lord says, I've proclaimed it now, it's clean. And this is now underscoring the very word that Jesus had spoken Actually, in, in Mark chapter 7, in Mark chapter 7, uh, uh, Jesus proclaimed that this indeed was coming. Because in Mark chapter 7, he's giving this description. Mark chapter 7, verse 18, it says, And he said to them, Are you lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and it is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. So, so you see, and Jesus is giving a description. It's not food that defiles a man. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him. Jesus then goes on to say it's what comes out of the man that defiles him. Because the words that come out of him are coming from his heart. That's what brings defilement, not what goes in. So Jesus had already proclaimed that there was going to be a change. And here he is enacting this change. So Peter was already told that Jesus was was bringing a change. And now we're told the change is now here. He says, I am proclaiming all foods clean. And you say, well, some people don't eat, some foods aren't as good for you as others. There are foods that that the scriptures clearly tell us that we can eat. We are religiously free to eat whatever we like. Whatever food there is, we can eat of it. And some Christians will say, well, don't eat pork because we have to live by the maker's diet. And he, No, the, the maker clearly said you can eat pork. It may not be something you want to eat every day. Maybe you don't want to eat sausage every day, three times a day. With bacon and, and, and with, with other kinds of pork. And with pork chops and everything. Maybe you don't want to eat that continuously. But there is nothing religiously that it does to defile us. This is what is said. Nothing religiously that it's going to defile us in this way. So when you hear Christians, you will meet Christians, and I've met lots of them, that tell you, you know, you really shouldn't eat that kind of food. It has nothing to do religiously. Maybe some food isn't as good for you and as healthy, and you don't want to eat maybe, you know, uh, eight muffins, right? Because it can be really bad for you or something. But there's nothing that is going to defile you in a religious sense. And that's what he's proclaiming here. But he's, he's really shaking Peter to his core. And he says it three times. Three times. And after three times, even God gives up. He's fine. Boom. He takes the vision away. He says he repeated it three times. You know, and sometimes it takes multiple times for God to get through to us that something is happening. And then in verse 17, now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men sent by Cornelius had had, had showed up at the door there. 
And so, uh, um, uh, look in verse 19 again. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, up in verse 17, Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be. So here he starts to consider it. One of the biggest problems that I see in science today, as a scientist is, as scientists, we don't think. What are you talking about? Scientists, of all people, they think. No, we're too harried to think. There's too many emails to answer. There's too much stuff going. There's too many meetings to attend. Too many proposals to write. Too many papers to review. And then it became the only time I would really think was on the airplane. You know, when every, all other distractions are gone. And now, I only think, really think on the airplane until the bell dings and I can open up my computer. And then I stop thinking again and I start, you know, doing, doing nonsense again on my computer. Because there's all this work to get done. Peter was reflecting on this vision. When will we read a scripture? When will we read a portion of scripture again? And say, Lord, what are you saying? What does this mean for me? And what often happens is we'll read a scripture and God will bring our eyes back to that verse over and over again. And this is an indication that God is talking. That He's bringing our eyes back to this verse and we're scratching His... What are you trying to say? Allow God to begin to speak to you. Take the time to reflect upon the scriptures. Rather than, oh Lord, thank you for this meal. Oh good. I'm done. I had my quiet time. You know, and there's this tendency in all of us to do this because our stomach is rumbling, like grumbling, like 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 Peter was going through. We we've got to go. You know, things to do. I got to go serve the Lord. And the Lord's saying, just reflect on this for a minute. So so Peter's perplexed about this, and he's reflecting on what does this mean. Peter didn't know immediately. Very often, God speaks to us through the Scriptures. We don't know what it means. And as we wait upon Him, He begins to reveal to us what this means. And we start matching up Scripture verse with Scripture verse. Oh yeah, this reminds me of this passage. What could He be saying to me? This is how God speaks. Often how He speaks. Or we hear a word in church and the pastor speaking a word and, and, and something is touching our hearts. Allow God the time to begin to reflect on this so that when you get to your quiet time... You pull out your notes from that message and start reflecting on it. And God, what does this mean for me? It seemed as if you were speaking to me. I don't want to let this slip by. Maybe you're speaking something to me. Because after the third time, he might go away. And then it's up to us to reflect on this thing and and call it back. And say, Lord, what are you working in my life? This is actually the way God speaks. And I'll confess to you, the most difficult part of my Christian walk is trying to understand God speaking to me. That's the most difficult part of my Christian walk. Trying to understand, what is He saying? What does all this mean? I'll give you a a practical thing. Here here I am, I've got this research group, and we've got several different research areas we're working on. And so one of the research areas, which was heavily, heavily funded for many years, for like, like 15, 17, 18 years, heavily supported in my group, is now becoming really tough to support. I'm trying very hard to get grant money for this and trying to sustain the effort in this. And then one grant after another is not being funded. And I'm saying, Lord, are you saying that we're to 
cease work in this area. Is this what you're trying to say? Or are you saying I should persist, keep working hard, God's going to come through? This is the thing that I struggle with. I want to know what is God saying? Because I've seen His hand provide, in a research sense-wise, in providing funds over and over and over again, many times throughout my career. And there have been times I had to work very hard to write proposals and get this, but then the, the funding comes. But then there's other times of dryness. And is this dryness mean that we should just stop and go on? You, you see what I mean? And so this is important to me. This is really important to me. It's not important to a whole bunch of other people. It's important to me. And you know what that means? It means it's important to the one who loves me. That I know. Because that which is important to my children is also important to me. If my, if my son really likes football, I like football. All of a sudden I get really interested in football because my son is interested in football. It's important to him, and because I love him, it becomes important to me. My other son's doing cross-country. I had never, never gone to a cross-country meet in my entire life. I don't, didn't know what you do there. So I show up long before his running event, thinking that, you know, this is the, the event, this is the cross-country. Well, it goes, you know, for like six hours. So I show up first thing in the morning thinking he's going to be in something. You know, the sun is just getting hotter and hotter, and this blazing sun, and finally I go to the car and I get a hat, and I, you know, and then go back out there and just I'm sweating, and he's still not, nothing is happening. His grade isn't being called yet. I didn't know you go and sit there, but he's my son. It's interesting to me because he's my son. And finally, I'm just soaking wet, sitting out in this blazing sun, and he still hasn't run yet. So I go inside, and I'm looking out the window, and, every, and finally, after hours, there's this event. And way down there is this group of kids that they call his grave, and I can't even see which one he is. I didn't, didn't know I needed binoculars for this thing. And then all of a sudden, I hear this shot, this group of kids goes, and they disappear. They're gone. This is cross country. I mean, I want football. I want something. I'm watching. They're gone. And then after some period of time, these kids start appearing no longer in a mass, but just one. Of, and then I see this number three. There's a whole mass of kids, and there's this number three kid. And here's my son. And I'm like rooting him on. This is my son, and he's coming. I say, Ben, come on, come on, go. And he's you're number three out of this whole mass of kids. I was really proud of him. You know, and this is my son, you know, dark hair, the dark skin, and he's coming and running. And then, as he gets near the finish line, I see, that's not my son. <laughs> that's somebody else's son. It's not him. I wondered why there were all these other people pulling for him. They must know him, too. And <laughs> then later on he comes. But this is cross-country, so now I know what to do. Now I know I'll show up exactly at the time that he's going to run and I just won't sit out in the blazing sun all day. This is what cross-country is. And when he's done with cross-country, I'll lose my interest in cross-country. Be- because he's into this now, I'm interested in this because that's my son. God cares about my research. He really does. If nobody else cares about it, that's fine. He cares about it because I care about it. And I am trying to see the will of God in this. And I'll read scriptures and wonder, God, are you speaking to me through this scripture? And I'll think about this and be perplexed about this. Just like Peter, wondering what's going on. And Peter, you'll look at him. And so there are these guys calling out to him. 
while he's, he's up there thinking about this and being perplexed, this is searching the mind of God. This is what we do as believers. We are trying to understand the mind of God. And wouldn't it be wonderful if God would just speak and, and, and uh, no, do more than just speak it. Because if he just spoke and said, do this, then after about a week I'd wonder, did he really say that? I, w- I want something written. Jim Tour, I want you to do this. Signed, Jesus. And so that I can pull it out of my pocket and say, yes, this is what he wants me to do. But you know what would happen? Is if I had that, I wouldn't have to seek him. This, this idea of trying to know the will of God for my life and you, the will of God for your life, keeps us yearning for him and seeking him and bringing us back to him. Because if I just got the note in my pocket, I just go about my life. And that's, no, I've got to be here at such and such a time and he's going to bless it. He's already told me. You know, and then I can, just, I can just daydream the rest of the day. But he's constantly calling us to a place where we have to seek him. Believe me, he knows what he's doing. He knows how to be God. He really knows how to do this. He knows what's best in our lives. And it keeps us yearning for him. It keeps us yearning to understand His will so that we have to to really look at this Scripture and analyze it. Because if I already had a note in my pocket what I had to do, I mean, I wouldn't have to search Him through the Scriptures. I wouldn't have to search His mind. I wouldn't have to pay attention in the church service because I already know what to do. He's already mapped it out for me. No, I have to yearn for Him to walk according to His will. And this is what Peter's doing. Peter's perplexed. God, you've shaken up His world here. Imagine if God just shook up your world. You just wait. Something in life is going to happen to you and your world is really going to be shaken up. Especially when you feel like you've got the world by the tail. Just wait. Your world's going to be shaken up. The job that you worked so hard to get, you're going to lose it somehow. You know, the company's going to go out of business. They're going to downsize or something. And your world's going to be shaken up. I I just bought this house. I just moved to this town. God, what are you doing? Oh, this is just normal Christian life. This is how I get you seeking me. This is how you start crying out to me. This is what God does. God is shaking up Peter's world. Peter thought he had everything figured out here. And God shakes it up. And it happens. It happens through death. Loss of a loved one. God, what are you doing? I was just engaged to this guy and he got hit by a car and he's dead. I mean, what's supposed to happen now? And God is not gone. God is very much there. And it keeps us yearning for Him and seeking to know what His will is. And so, in verse 18, there were men at the door and they were, crying, they were calling out, asking whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. Hey, is Simon here, they're saying? And then he comes down, in verse 19, While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgiving, for I have sent them myself. So here God is speaking. So he's bringing another confirming word now. God is speaking and bringing another word. So as Peter's reflecting on this, there's men crying out, is Simon Peter here? And then the Spirit speaks to Peter. Go. Go with them without misgivings. Don't lack any faith. Go with them. You will begin to hear 
something in a church service, and then the Holy Spirit starts witnessing something to your heart. This is for you. Deal with this issue. This is how the Holy Spirit talks. Sometimes, as you're reflecting on something, boom, the Holy Spirit starts to speak. This is what God does. He brings confirmation of His Word. He brings confirmation of His Word. He had the vision. He's reflecting on it. Then there's some men calling out. Then the Spirit speaks to him. And then he goes downstairs and the men say, you need to come with us to Caesarea. So here, Peter is reflecting, what does this mean? And God says, I'll tell you what it means. It means there's men calling for you, go with them. No, I want to know, I'm not going to go anywhere till you tell me what the whole thing means. No, God doesn't do that. He doesn't map out the whole thing. He says, you take this little step and then I'll tell you something else. You take this little step of obedience and then I'll tell you something else. In the end, then you will know what it was about. But I'm going to take you one little step at a time. God rarely, if ever, maps everything out. Do you think He told Joseph and Mary, I'm calling you down to Bethlehem so that the Messiah can be born in the city that he's supposed to be born in because it's written he needs to be born in Bethlehem and you happen to live in Nazareth, so get on down there. No. He has Augustus Caesar proclaim a census. I mean, wouldn't it have been a lot less problem for everyone if he had just told Joseph and Mary, get on down to Bethlehem so the Messiah can be born in the right place? But God has Augustus Caesar Proclaim a census so that everybody throughout throughout the Roman Empire has to go back to their home city. I mean, this is a lot of work just to get one baby born in the right place. And think of how Mary felt. I have four children. And when, when a woman is great with child, there's a lot of hormonal activity within them. And to, to walk 50 miles or ride on a donkey, however she came, we don't know. She could not have been in a good mood. And I feel sorry for Joseph. I really do. There's a lot of problems here. Couldn't he have told her a little bit earlier before she was so great with child? How about telling her like in the fourth month? You know, just take your time, make it sort of a vacation trip. You know, you can stop in and see people along the way. And that Joseph can remember to book a hotel room. You know, couldn't he have done that? But God leads us little by little. He says this little act of obedience. And then, sometimes he leads us purely by circumstances. A decree by, by Caesar saying, get down to that city or you shall die. Sometimes he takes something totally of the world to guide us. The factory is closing. You're out of work. Well, if you wanted me in Chicago for this other position, why didn't you just tell me? Sometimes he leads us by circumstances. And that's what we see in the Scriptures. He leads us a little bit at a time. But what we see is that God speaks, and if we listen, He gives more. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the Word of God. And Father, thank You because You know what's best in our lives.
to keep us yearning for You and searching for You. Lord, You are so good and I praise Your name for it. Father, thank You that You give to us a little bit at a time, just as much as we can handle. Father, thank You for not overwhelming Peter all at once on the day of Pentecost, but little by little, You brought him up. Father, I thank You for these precious ones here, that according to Your way, little by little, You would bring them step by step to walk in obedience to You. Father, have mercy on them that there would be immediate acts of obedience once discerning Your will. Father, that You may give them more and keep them yearning for You and searching for You. Father, You are gracious and I praise Your name. Thank You, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.